Amen. Please be seated. said at the beginning of the service, I'm not the regular preacher here. Colin Packer is. And aren't we thankful that he is? What an incredible blessing he is to us. Uh, we had extremely high expectations of Colin when he came, and he has exceeded those. And we just thank God and praise him for, for blessing our church family with somebody who can proclaim so powerfully the word of God. And I appreciate him inviting me there. Uh, he and Holly and the family are away this week. And I appreciate him inviting me to share a, a message with you this morning. I'm, I'm thrilled to be doing what I'm doing here in the church and excited about some of the ministries I'm a, a part of. But today we're continuing the baggage claim series that we've been in for several weeks. And this morning I'd like, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 is where we'll be today. And I have to say, while you're turning there, I'm indebted to John Ortberg for, for this lesson. But I want to start by going back uh, uh, several years ago in my ministry, uh, almost 40 as a matter of fact. I was fresh out of college. I was a youth minister at a little church over in Fort Worth, and we had taken a group of teens up to Oklahoma Christian for high school day. And we were on our way back. It had been a good trip. And uh, we had planned to stop in Ardmore on the way back to have some dinner. Uh, but the bus driver kind of got distracted, as you can do with a bunch of teens in the bus, and he missed the exit. So instead of going on to the next exit, or the next town for that matter, he decides he's going to correct that mistake by doing a U-turn on I-35, just right across the median there. I wasn't sure about that, but I said, you know, okay, but whatever you do, don't stop. Because you see, it might not have been a real problem, but it had been raining for several days, and the ground was totally soaked. So he slows down, pulls over, does a U-turn, and then he stops on the grass. And when he decides to start up again, he gives it the gas, and the wheels turn, but the bus doesn't move. And he gives it more gas, and they turn faster, but the bus still doesn't move. It just starts digging a hole into the ground. We get all of the kids off of the bus in the median of I-35, and he tries to get it out, but it's not going to move. All the guys, they, you know, guys, teenagers can do anything. So they get up there, and they start pushing on the bus, and all that happens is they get caked with mud along with the bus. And finally, after exhausting all reasonable efforts and a few unreasonable ones, we decided we needed to send somebody into Ardmore to get a, a big truck wrecker to come and pull the bus out of the mud. We, we got back home uh, covered in mud and uh, a little later than we intended to, but everybody was safe, so we're thankful for that. But that experience taught me two lessons. First, if you're going to take a group of kids on a bus trip, it's really important to have a driver that knows what to do and what not to do. Second, and more pertinent to our, our focus today, it's really important to know what to do when you get stuck. Because stuck doesn't just happen to buses or cars. Stuck happens to people. It happens to marriages, and families, and 
finances, jobs, and behavioral patterns, all kinds of things. And when we get stuck, it creates all kinds of heartache in our lives. But, but there was a man who came along one day who had this incredible ability to help people get unstuck from whatever it was they were stuck in. There was this uh, adulterous woman who was trapped in, in guilt and shame over her immoral lifestyle. There was a tax collector named Zacchaeus who, who was a slave to greed and just wanting more and more. There was a, a, a church leader, religious leader named Nicodemus who was blind to his own judgmental self-righteousness. There was a Pharisee named Saul who was so consumed by this anger inside him, he went around putting people in prison and and killing some. And in, in every case, they were completely unable to get unstuck from what they were they were caught up in. In fact, I suspect in most of those situations, they didn't even realize they were stuck. But amazingly, when they began to follow this man named Jesus, when they followed the, the way that he called them to, they got freed from whatever it was that they were stuck in. When they, when they lost their lives to become his followers, they, they got them back again. And Jesus would say these strange things to people, things like, truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You know, we don't get that. Most of the time, we think freedom is being, being free to do just anything we want to do. Where we go where we want, we, we do what we want. If I want to do this, I'll do it. If I don't want to do that, I won't. Just free to live any way that we feel like living. But the problem is, when we do that, when we give in to our passions and desires and just do whatever they call us to do, eventually, we'll get stuck there. And those things will just begin to control us so that we become someone who's not free at all. Instead, we're enslaved to our physical and emotional appetites. And Jesus got that. He understood it. That's why he said, whoever sins sooner or later is going to become a slave to sin. But he also said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And the people who followed him they found that to be true. And later they would say things like, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, or where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now what does that have to do with us today? Well, it's simply this. Jesus still frees people. He's still in the business of setting people free. And occasionally, we see that powerfully demonstrated in, the, in situations where somebody has gotten caught up in some kind of addictive behavior, in, in drugs or, or alcohol or, or, or sexual things like pornography or other habits. And, and we see when they start following Jesus, they are freed from these things. And there's this, this incredible transformation in their lives. The problem is, Sometimes we tend to think that that doing those things that Jesus calls us to do is only for people who are in those kind of addictive behaviors, but that's not true. 
Jesus didn't, didn't come and teach and tell people the way to go just for people who are, who are caught up in that stuff. He came to give every single one of us a way of life that can get us freed from the stuff that we tend to get stuck in, whatever that is. Now, often like those people in the Bible, we don't even recognize we're stuck because we tend to think, well, that's just the way things are, you know? We may have a problem with overeating or out-of-control spending or anger issues or other things. Or, or maybe we struggle with just trying to please everybody. Just whatever somebody expects of me, I just feel compelled to do that. And there are dozens of other things that we can get stuck in that make our lives miserable. But we, we tend to think, well, that's just the way I am. You know, God made me this way. I don't know why God made me this way, but he made me this way, and there's nothing I can do about it. I've just got to deal with that the very best that I can. But, folks, that's a lie. Because Jesus came and said, I came to do something about that for you. I came to show you the way to get free from all the junk that you get stuck in that keeps you struggling in your life. And I believe with all my heart that it is time for the church to understand that and to embrace that and to experience the kind of freedom in our moment-to-moment lives that Jesus came to provide and to let us have and enjoy. <clears throat> when we begin to believe, that's just the way it is for me, and there's nothing I can really do about it. We're getting sucked into the deceiver's lie. When we think, you know, it's, it's no use, there's no hope for me, the enemy is winning because there is hope for you. There is healing for you. There is freedom for you. Wherever you have been, whatever you have done, wherever you are now, Jesus says, I want to get you unstuck. Sooner or later, if we're stuck, we're probably going to ask ourselves a question. Why is it that I keep doing this stuff that I don't want to do? Why is it that I decide to act one way and before I know it, I look up and I'm doing the opposite of what I decided I was going to do? I mean, <laughs> I, I say to myself, whatever I do, I'm not going to eat that and then I wind up eating that. I tell myself, don't tell her she's like her mother. Whatever you do, don't tell her she's like her mother. And then I hear somebody saying, you're just like your mother, and it's me. <laughs> I tell myself, I'm not going to get angry, and then I do. I'm not going to yell at the kids, and then I yell at the kids. I'm not going to look at that, and then I go online and I look at it. I'm not going to drink that stuff, and then I drink it. I'm not going to worry and, and get upset about everything. I'm just going to live with peace and trusting in God and being calm. And then I do exactly what I didn't intend to do. And I don't know if you haven't felt that, but I think most of us have. And the first step to getting out of that cycle, the first step toward freedom, is, is to admit where we really are right now. You see, a long time ago, a guy named Paul described this dynamic, this, this, this experience, this process, in a way that I don't think in 2,000 years anybody's done a better job of doing. 
here's what he wrote in Romans chapter 7, beginning of verse 15. He says, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what's right, but I can't. I don't do what I want to do. What I hate, that I do. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. This is verse 18. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try to not do wrong, I do it anyway. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it's plain where the trouble is. Sin still has me in its evil grasp. In other words, the starting point for getting free, for experiencing the kind of life God intends for us to have, is not what most people think it is. It's not, I'm going to try harder today. I'm going to try harder to not get angry. I'm going to try harder to be nicer to my kids or to, to not look at porn or to eat the right kind of things or not worry about what others think about me or whatever it is that you're stuck in. I always thought that's what it was because that's what I was taught. Seriously. You know, you just need to try harder. You just need to, 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 to work smarter. You just need to practice longer. You just need to do it better. You just need to, 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 to suck it up and gut it out and buckle down and make it happen. But that's not true. Because I've tried that and it doesn't work. I just seem to keep doing the same things over and over, just like Paul describes it right here. And it just makes us a slave to something else. You can today go over to Auschwitz in Germany and visit the old Nazi concentration camp there. And over the entrance to that camp is still a sign that says, Arbit mocked Fry, which in English means Work makes you free. But that wasn't true. The the people that went through that gate worked their fingers to the bone and it never made anybody free. Just led to death. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. The way Jesus calls us to follow is not just about working harder or longer or smarter. The starting point to the freedom he wants us to know, the starting point to getting unstuck is way simpler and way more humbling than that. The beginning of getting unstuck is this. I have to admit that I am powerless over my fatal attraction to do wrong. And my life has become unmanageable. See, the beginning of freedom in Christ is really nothing more than the acceptance of reality, spiritual reality, ultimate reality. Because the reality is I'm not in control. You see, the very beginning of living the way God made you to live, of experiencing the freedom that Christ wants you to have, involves this decision. Am I going to play God or am I going to obey God? And every one of us has to make that decision for ourselves. What am I going to do? Am I going to play God? Will I let my ego be on the throne? Will I make sure that my will is done? Will I want my little kingdom to come? Or will I say, God, actually, I don't want to be the manager of my universe because I can't even control my own actions. 
much less the world around me. According to Paul, the reason we do what we do is because of this, this, this incredible, mysterious, powerful, spiritual force. The Bible calls that sin. It's bigger than me, but it's somehow gotten inside of me. And it, it, it affects the way I think. It affects the way I see things. It, it affects the way I feel about things. It affects the way I look at life. And at its core, sin isn't just breaking some rules or doing some fun stuff that God's too strict to let us do. It's a very misunderstood word in our society today. But the only time you hear anybody use the word sin is when they're talking about dessert or drinks. Have you noticed that? That's about it. I looked online, saw a restaurant today. It was a dessert place, and the name of it was Sin. And here's, what they, here's how they described it on their website. Sin with us. Sin has a line of special occasion cakes and desserts. It makes the sin of dessert well worth it. I love the, no, I don't love, I hate the title of their website. Here's the deal. I'm not recommending that. I'm kind of afraid to mention that because some of you, the only thing you'll remember from this sermon is, what was the name of that restaurant again? Sounded pretty good, you know? Let's go find out where we can go to that. I'm not recommending sin, either the restaurant or the behavior. But sin isn't just something to name dessert places. Sin at its core involves the illusion that I can live independent of God. There's this subconscious, often hidden decision that I don't want to obey God. I want to play God in my life. I'm going to put my will on the throne. Now, of course, us good church-going people, we, we wouldn't be obvious about that. We wouldn't admit this even to ourselves. And that's part of what makes it so powerful. We decide, though, that we're going to kind of manage things. We're going to manage our life. We're going to manage our universe. I'm going to control the things around me, control the people around me. I'll control my spouse. I'll control my kids. I'll control the people at my workplace. I'll control what people think. I'll control what they say about me. I'll control what they do, how they treat me. I'm going to manage all of this stuff. We'll even use deception if we need to. Anybody ever use deception to make your life just a little bit more manageable? Go ahead, raise your hand. Yeah. And and those of you not raising your hand, you're probably doing it right now, you know? (laughs) But we want to manage things. We want to control things. I want to manage your impression of me. I'm going to do impression management, and then I'll start to worship my own ego. And then I'll become a slave to my reputation. You see, that's what Jesus said. You, you, you do that, and you'll just be- eventually become a slave to it. Then when we get all caught up in this stuff and something goes wrong, it's really painful. So we want to manage our pain, so we medicate in all kinds of ways. Not, not everybody uses drugs or alcohol or what. We've got all kinds of things that we can use. Things like eating or buying stuff or travel, or just escaping into television, or movies, or the internet, or whatever, just to try to manage the pain. Probably our favorite way to do that is just being busy. If we can just stay busy enough, 
We don't have time to think about those things. And it's so constant in our world. We've come to believe it's just normal. But it's not normal. It's just so pervasive we think it's normal. And it's going to go on until we find a situation or a circumstance or a relationship that we can't manage anymore. And until we find that, we may never really find God. When that day comes, the first step to dealing with it is not trying to fix it. The first step is to admit that it's out of our control. It's more than we can do. Here's how one recovery program described the way we take that step together. We're people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, an understanding which is indescribable. We're like passengers from a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck in which camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. We normally would not mix, they say. If you've ever been to a 12-step program, you know exactly how that looks. Because there's this strange assortment of people that you think, how in the world did they ever come together? We are people who normally wouldn't mix. You know what? That was the church in Acts chapter 2. All kinds of people, all different kinds of people who came together and you wonder, what are those people doing together? Old and young, rich and poor, uh, powerful and weak, educated and uneducated, male and female, slave and free. They all came together in the church, coming together as one. And you know what? We can be that place today too. But not if we come together based on our strengths. Not if we come together based on our own resources or our giftedness or our potential or our education or or any of that stuff. Only if we come together based on our powerlessness and our weakness and our recognition that our lives are unmanageable. I heard about one church who decided they were going to be a Me Too church. Now, we're very familiar with Me Too churches. We see them all the time. It goes like this. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine too. Me too. How's your life? Man, life is great. You know, the job's under control. The kids are overachieving. Summertime living is easy. The fish are biting. The, the, the cotton's high. You know, mama's good looking. Daddy's rich. Everything is just great. Oh, yeah, me too. That's the kind of Me Too church we're accustomed to, but that's not the kind of church they had in the New Testament. The church they had, the kind of Me Too church they had then was one that John describes in 1 John 1 and verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. That's the kind of Me Too church we need to be. Just to kind of start that. I want to do that right now. And at the end of it, if you want to, I'll invite you to respond with just two little words. Just say, me too. That's it. Just me too. If, that, if that's what you want. But here goes. 
I'm a mess. On my own, I am powerless over my own ego, and my life is unmanageable. I need God. Left to myself, I'll waste my one and only life in stupid ways. I'll damage and neglect relationship. I'll make idols out of success in my reputation. I'll dishonor my sexuality. I'll use words that I'm supposed to use for God to deceive people. I'll use people for my own advancement. I'll serve myself instead of serving others. Greed will rule my wallet. Resentments will fill my heart. Pride will govern my choices. Ego will dominate my life. And left to myself, I'll spend a pathetic existence trying to polish my outer image so no one can see what a self-centered sinner I am on the inside. And if successful in this, I'll go to my grave a respectable fraud. I'm a mess, and I need God. And all the people said, That's what draws us together. It's the letting go of that ego, the deflation of that ego. And that's hard to do because we live in a culture, in a world that is constantly bombarding us with these messages that just say, just build that up. Just build up that ego. And that's not something new. Remember the old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way? Classic example. It's been around for a long time. But the way of Jesus actually says life starts with the deflation of that, that our world is telling us to build up. This is from Tim Keller. He said, Andrew Bidelbanco is a humanities professor at Columbia. He started doing research on Alcoholics Anonymous at one AA meeting in a church basement. He listened to a crisply dressed young man who was talking about his problems. In his narrative, this young man was absolutely faultless. All his mistakes were due to the injustice and betrayal of others. His every gesture betrayed his deeply wounded pride and ego. It was clear he was trapped. Remember what Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It was clear he was trapped in his need to justify himself and things would only get worse and worse in his life until he recognized this. While he was still speaking, a black man in his 40s in dreadlocks and dark shades leaned over to Del Banco and said, I used to feel that way too before I achieved low self-esteem. <laughs> Del Banco wrote, this is more than just a clever phrase. As the speaker bombarded us with words like, I have to take control of my life and I have to really believe in myself. The man beside me took refuge in the old biblical doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. And letting go is the beginning of getting unstuck. And having the life of freedom that Jesus created us to live. It's dying to self. And there's no way around it. It just hurts. Generally, only really desperate people ever get there. By the way, that's why it's really hard for people living in Collin County, Texas. Because the more resources we have, the more we tend to think we can manage our own lives. The more money, the more talent, the more success, the more security, the more connections, the more resources make us think that we're doing okay when really we're just scrambling to keep it all covered up, what's underneath. 
that always comes as a shock to people because they think they're doing okay. But it's, it's why some people who came face to face with Jesus refused to follow him. People like the rich young ruler or Nicodemus or the Pharisees because they thought they were, they were able to manage life. Here's what Jesus said about that, Matthew 19, 23. It's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Understand, the kingdom of heaven is not just going to the good place where you die. It's the kind of life that God wants us to experience right here and right now in the power of his grace and his goodness. Jesus said, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Who's rich? I am. And all the people said, yeah. Some of you may remember a few months ago the story of a a news anchor named Brian Williams who apparently kind of embellished a story about when he was on a military helicopter in Iraq and they came under fire. I mean, here is this this bright, successful, wealthy, good-looking, intelligent, capable person. And either consciously or unconsciously, there was a little voice inside him that said, you're still not impressive enough. You need to be a little more impressive. So he he enhances this story, and when it comes unraveled, everybody just jumps on him. Everybody just condemns that. And then we feel better about ourselves because, of course, we would never do anything like that, right? We're people who normally would not mix, but we share this question. Why do I do what I don't want to do? We're not united by our backgrounds, by, by our race or our age or our wealth or our political opinions or even our right religious beliefs. What unites us is this and only this. I am a messed up sinner who is powerless to control sin and I need God to set me free, to get me unstuck. All that other stuff isn't what matters here. There exists among us a fellowship, a friendship, an understanding which is indescribable. We're like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue. If you're a mess, welcome home. And if you're not a mess, stick around and we'll try to help you achieve low self-esteem. Some of us have been hiding for so long and it's killing us. We keep trying to medicate the pain with success or going places or buying more stuff or staying busy or a million other things. They don't work we're going to experience the life Jesus wants us to, if we're going to get free, it starts with just laying it out before God and saying, God, I can't do it myself. I need you to do it. It looks like this. 
This week I'm getting ready to preach. And I'm working on the sermon. And I pray, God, help me communicate how important this is to people. And while I'm praying, I, I, I envision myself teach, preaching this powerful message that's so humble. You see, I can't even pray to God for 30 seconds without worshiping my own ego. God, would you destroy that in me because it's killing me and I can't seem to. I have issues. And all the people said, yeah. So I want to challenge you one thing. We've got to quit. I want to challenge you this week. If you're not in a connecting point group, guys, get in a group. But whether it's in your connecting point group, whether it's just you have someone that you trust, get with someone and confess some small, safe-to-describe sin. And if you, if you can't think of a single sin you're struggling with, make one up. Then you can confess to lying about that, okay? <laughs> Just to get started. Recovery programs say little good can come to someone unless they have first accepted their devastating weakness with all its consequences. Where do they get that? Well, that guy named John, you know, he talked about it. James did too. James 5, 16. Confess your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you can be healed. Find somebody you can start that with. Because the church is a place where followers of Jesus are trained to tell their stories as repenting, recovering sinners. Kent Dunning then says, of course, many of us are not sure we want to be in a church that so trains us. For that would entail not only our humiliation, but also a vulnerability to others in which many of us have no interest. We're afraid that if we confess our sins, other people might make claims on our lives by insisting on praying for us and asking us how we're doing. Most of us are not sure we want the church to be that involved. But God is that involved. On the cross, God got that involved. On the cross, Jesus took the stuff that we're stuck in, our shame and our guilt on himself. At the cross, Jesus said, me too, God. Take me. Break me. Crush me. So that we can say to God, me too, God. Love me. Heal me. Set me free. God will do that. But we have to stop playing games and start getting real. Let's pray together. Father, today we come, each of us in our own way, with our own issues that have us stuck, and we come simply confessing to you that in spite of our best efforts, we're powerless in the face of this baffling thing called sin. We don't understand why we so often do what we don't want to do. But we admit that's what's happening and we need your help. So Lord, would you give us the faith and the courage to stop trying to manage our lives on our own. Stop trying to manage the way other people see us and simply trust you to do in our hearts and our lives what we can't. Oh God, enable us to lay all of our junk, all of our sin and our shame at the foot of the cross. 
and allow you to do in us what we're unable to do. Free us from the sin that has a hold on us and allow us to live the life you created us to live. And may all who see the miracle of that transformation give you and you alone the glory. For we pray this in the name of our eternal freedom fighter, Jesus Christ, and all men. Would you stand for our benediction?